What's been happening here in this space at Echo over the last few months has been nothing short of weird and cool, right? Like if you, if you wrote this narrative, you just heard from Steve who said like, this is my space. I started this. And then he makes a joke about everything being about him, but having known him for 20 years, it wasn't a joke. Um, and it's, it's pretty true. But I love that because what he's been about has been about the church and the church expanding and the church growing and the church going into spaces where maybe the church hasn't been welcomed in the past and that led he and Kelly 13 years ago, 13 plus years ago to say here's a space in Cincinnati in this Walnut Hills area where we're not sure that the gospel is really thriving and we're willing to go and let's be there and let's rent space and borrow space and work at Panera and do other things and be at a university for employment. Let's just do whatever it takes in order to find ways to bring the gospel into a space where we're not sure. And I think most of us that are sitting here today or hanging out in this space are thankful for that, that someone was willing to bring the gospel into a space that we weren't sure that it was welcomed because we haven't been sure whether or not we were welcomed. And that's the beauty of Echo, is that it's a community of people who at some point have questioned whether or not the gospel was for them, whether it was because of institutional rebellion, hurt, wounding, shame, disconnect or discontent, or a simple realization that I just don't have a voice here Most of us at some season in our life have had an opportunity to question whether or not this really is good news and the good news is for us. Enter Echo, a space, a church, a community that says everyone is welcome. Come at your own pace, come from your own background, we'll figure it out together. And there have been different approaches to that over the years as to how to engage the church and the community. And then here we are in June of 2018 with a room full of people who have come together from different avenues and different paths and different backgrounds for different reasons, and yet we're here. In a season where God is bringing in different leaders with Seth and Michelle joining us, and beginning to lead and navigate in a direction. And for some of us, pick me, this short little trip that said start on staff in January and end like shortly thereafter because I was just a placeholder in order to navigate, not just a placeholder. It's probably a bad way to say that because it's all about Steve. Um, Because I'm friends with this community that I was able to come in and be part of something that I've always wondered whether or not can really exist. A community of people that are coming together for what God is calling them to do in a specific space as they pursue Jesus in the way in which he has called us all, but at the pace in which they are ready. And that's happening here. So welcome to that story. Whether it's your first Sunday or you've been here all 13 years, welcome to the story of what is happening in the church here in this space you have a voice and sometimes that voice will be really affirming and sometimes that voice will be scary have you ever been in a space where you've been welcomed in and when you got there you were like oh no is it going to be like that 
I have this joke that I like to play on students who attend the camps that we lead. Every two or three years, we bring high school students into a space at a camp in the middle of nowhere, so that's already scary, right? Like you've got cabins and woods and humans hanging out that are just weird, right? Like high schoolers are weird. Um, And high school youth pastors are weirder because we've chosen as a profession to go back and hang out in that weirdness and to challenge it and to raise its leadership acumen and to play games together and to enjoy life together. And sometimes people look at a youth minister and go, you're weird. Yes, we are. But we're also creative. And one of the things I realized in youth ministry early on is the gap between generations when you live in youth ministry, right? Like there's this community of high school students who know and understand things and technology, technological advances, all that stuff is just normal life to them. And then they look at older generations and go, you don't get us. And then older generations look back and go, you don't remember when it was awesome, right? Like I just had this conversation with a a, a late 30-something last week who was telling me 90s music was the best music ever. And I was like, yep, but like all of the great music, they're all dead. Like all, like Pour one out for Biggie and Pac, right? Like there, there was this season that you look back at yours, and, but I remember another generation saying it was the, a group of music before that, like it's 60s or 70s. And we always are looking back in a perspective that the greatest time to be a youth was always some other time. And there's a disconnect. And so the way we like to connect that disconnect is by using the art of film. And at a 121 camp, occasionally we'll start off on a Sunday night and we'll finish the message and the worship and then we'll ask the students to sit back down and we'll start a movie. And it's in black and white. And it crackles when it starts. And the pace is really slow. Because my goal is to graft together generations and unless we see and hear from different generations, we don't know how to connect to each other. And every time, every time we start one of these old movies, the sound is the same in the room. It's this, are you kidding me? Like you hear it. Because high schoolers don't care if they, if you hear them offend you, right? They just don't. They're just like, these guys are idiots. What are they doing? Is this the wrong film? What do we have to watch? What are they doing? Like they will verbally process everything that everyone in the room is thinking. And so as this black and white movie will come up, they will go, are you kidding me? And you can tell you've lost the high school student when they leave the message to go to the bathroom. Sometimes that starts in the first couple of minutes. They're like, I got to go to the bathroom. I can't wait. Or I got to go get some coffee or whatever. When we start one of these older movies, it's almost like an exodus where the students are like, oh, this is optional, right? We're going to get up and leave. And all the leaders are like, no, no, you can't leave. You have to watch. Don't worry. You're going to love this. And they're like, no, it's black and white. We are not going to love this. This is not going to be something I'm going to enjoy. I'm going to go to the bathroom in groups. Like even the boys start going to the bathroom in groups. And yet... We push them, and we're like, you have to stay, you have to sit, and you watch. And one of my favorites to show is a movie called Scream of Fear. Can you, like, you see it? You have to rent this movie. It's, it's the motion picture, picture shocker of the year, right? Like, 1961 is when this movie came out. A mystery, a thriller. It starts with a lagoon in England, 
and the sound of a boat with water just kind of bumping up against the water. No audio. It's just quiet. There's no, like, music coming in. There's just this Moorish look of fog and boat. And then within, like, two minutes, you have these two men pull a body out of a boat. I'm not giving away. Like, it's not, like, you know, I think we've gone past the time on, you know, just, like, sharing too much with this movie. It's 1961. But you should, it doesn't give away the movie. But in the beginning, you see this body come into the boat, and all the high schoolers are looking going, stupid. This is just stupid. What are we doing? And then the mystery starts. For them, the mystery is, why are you showing me this? But we really like to mess with students' minds. So we don't show them the whole movie. We show them like four minutes and 35 seconds of the movie before the first like shocker scream of fear comes out. Like this girl screams really loud and we just shut the movie off. And then we're like, okay, now you have snacks at the snack shack and then we're going to go into small group time and then you're going to go to bed. We'll see you guys later. And the response every time to that first night is, is that over? Is that all you're going to show of that movie? Why? Because that was stupid. I don't want to see any more of that. Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I don't want to watch it again. Okay, thank you for offending me and hurting my feelings. I'm going to go cry, and I'll come back later. And then the second night, we start the movie, and it progresses. Another scream, we turn it off. By the second night, we've got a little bit more buy-in to where they're like, Maybe two or three kids in the front row, like the real movie addicts, are going, no, why'd you stop? And they're looking back like, did someone hit the wrong button? We're like, okay, you can go to small group time now. You can go get your snack. This will be fun. By the fifth night of camp, the entire community has changed because we're walking into a main session, and we've done this all week where we've shared one-minute clips, four-minute clips, a 15-minute clip. And by the end of the night, the students are now in groups, in tribes, based on who they believe did it. Like, who killed the person? Who's bro- like, they're sitting in groups based on, I think it was the butler. I think it was the driver. I think it was the girl. I think it was the dad. I think it was, like, they're all, co- in, a community has been created around what once was a mystery. And then we simply say, you guys haven't shown much interest in this movie, so we're just not going to show the ending. And then we go on into the message for the rest of the night. Like, we, they don't get a voice. We just don't show it. And then we go on into the message. And we don't ever tell them how it ends. That's mystery, right? Like, this cliffhanger-ish, we don't know what's going to happen next. We're not even sure that we're bought in. We don't know if we like this. Welcome to Ephesians chapter 3. Where if we're going to be grafted for generations, we are going to see the scream of fear movie of our lives where it starts and we're not sure if it stops. And when we start to read it, we're not even sure if we want to be here. I will be the first to admit to you that Ephesians 3 is one of my least favorite chapters in all of scripture because I was wounded by this chapter and I don't even want to teach on it. I'm going to start with the end in the beginning and tell you that story. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is 
at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The author of this, we believe, is Paul. Paul is writing to this community of non-Jews, which we call Gentiles, that are spread out in these uh, spaces around Ephesus. And at the end of chapter 3, he's writing this like rah-rah cheerleader type encouragement doxology of saying, this is it. It's to the God who can do more than we could imagine and we can ask for. And he's going to provide these riches in his mercy. And we're going to go forever and ever. Amen, right? And everybody's like, yeah, except for those of us who grew up in church and were part of a capital campaign. Because this scripture ruins us in the name of Jesus Because I've heard preacher after preacher come in and say, you know what God is telling us? God is telling us that we need a bigger building. Or in the past couple of weeks, you know what God is telling us? God is telling us that we need private jets. And to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine, he's going to use you to fly me around the world or to give us a bigger building. Maybe God is telling us to have bigger buildings sometimes. I don't know. Maybe God is telling us to have our own private jets. I don't know. That'd be cool. I'd I'd be down. But what has happened and what happened to me was that this verse was used to say, this is what God is telling the church. He is able to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. Join us in what he's about to do, and we are going to test God to see if he wants to do more through you, which means that if he does, we're part of the kingdom, and if he doesn't, we're probably out. So I was in a church on staff who had a bigger budget than they could be able to bring money in for, and they had a building debt, and so an elder said that he went away and prayed, and that he was given this verse, and he came back in, and he said, this is the story that God gave me. I wrote sums of money on bricks, and I'm going to put them on the front of the stage, and on this morning, we're going to pray that God could do more than we could ask or imagine, and you are going to take a brick of either $1,000, $5,000, $10,000, or $25,000, and you are going to spend the next month praying over this brick, and God is going to provide you the money that you have taken from the brick, and that is going to relieve the debt of the church. Are you in? I can see by your faces, you are not in. I was not either, but I was on staff. And so we had had discussions the week before of, are you willing to go? And I'm like, oh my goodness, which like, can I take $50? Like, is there a $50 brick? Because I just need, like, is there a blank one that I can pretend there's a number on it and just take it back to my seat and sit on it? But there wasn't. And so there was this teaching on praying toward blessed. Like, all of this stuff was happening. And people are taking bricks. And it's a blue-collar church. And I'm watching people go up and take $25,000 bricks. And I'm like, you are going to need to win the lottery in order for that one to happen. That's bold. A month goes by. And some people bring in thousands and thousands of dollars and they contribute it to the church. And then there's a large group of people like me who look in their offices and see this brick staring them in the face and going, okay, God, I didn't get an extra thousand. I don't know where the thousand's supposed to come from. Am I just supposed to like make up the thousand? Did you want to provide for me later? Like, should I, 
find a low interest credit card and just give you the thousand and then just pay off, you know, 3,000 later. So I looked at that thing and thought, how sad that I'm going to have to process the shame of not being close enough to God because I couldn't find enough money in my bank account to rebuild whatever God wanted to rebuild. So my scream of fear came when I looked at this passage and said, I have to teach on Ephesians 3. I hate Ephesians 3. Oh, and by the way, the elder who did all of that ended up stealing another elder's wife and running away and starting another church. Yeah, good times. So we wanted to throw a brick at his face. Sometimes being grafted in means that you have to join a story that you're not sure that you even agree with. And some things, sometimes things start in a way that just aren't fair. So I teach you on this chapter out of a heart that said, I really struggled this week to find what God wanted to tell us because all I could do all week was process my trauma. And it was interesting that I met with someone this past week who brought that same illustration back up and said that he took one of the larger bricks and actually put it on a credit card because he felt so much pressure from the church. And it took him about eight years to pay it off. Right? Yeah, it's okay to shake your head. I can't believe that. Because sometimes in the name of Jesus, things that we can't believe scare us away from the things that are unbelievable that we have to lean into. And that's what I learned this week was my fear of Ephesians 3 was connected to a lie about it, not to the truth about it. So let's just spend a few minutes diving into the truth about Ephesians chapter 3. The first I wanted to put on there, and you could read it, is that grafted into God's family over the past three weeks over Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 means this, that we are grafted into God's family by the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. That in chapter 2 we were told we are grafted together through the gospel of mercy and grace. That we are invited to remember where we were before Jesus so that we can offer the mercy and grace given to us to those who are around us. And today our focus in chapter 3 is that the real story of Ephesians chapter 3 is that we are grafted in for generations as we steward the mystery of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, you can look in the blue Bibles if you want to. It's like 838-ish is the page. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. It's really interesting that you would write a letter and in chapter 3, then start to offer your LinkedIn profile, right? Like it's, he starts in the beginning and says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He goes through chapter 2 and says, everyone is welcome. And then we get back to chapter 3, and Paul starts the chapter by saying, don't forget this is who I am. I am a prisoner. And he meant this on two levels. First, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ because I'm on house arrest in Rome. Based on the book of Acts, we know he's in Rome on house arrest because he's been sharing the gospel with Gentiles, and he was so bold as to actually bring non-Jews into the temple and teach them the practices of following Yahweh God as a Gentile. And Jewish leaders had had enough of that, and they were like, somebody figure out a way to throw this guy in jail. The best they got was house arrest. And so he's arrested in his house, unable to take people into the temple where he wants to go. He's not really having the type of meetings that he wants to have. So he's writing letters. 
It's been four years since he's talked to the people in Ephesus. The community has changed. The gospel is being transformative. And so in chapter 3, he begins and says, I want you to know you're going to listen to the rest of this chapter because I know what it means to go to jail for what I believe. I don't know what it means to do that. I have yet to go to jail on behalf of Jesus. There was at one point in my life, I wrote that in my journal, Jesus, someday I want to go to jail on your behalf. I told my wife that, and she said, I want you to erase that line out of your journal. That's crazy. I do not want my husband in prison. Like, that just sounds weird. I don't want your kids coming and visiting you behind the glass. And you're going, this was all for Jesus. I have not physically experienced imprisonment for the gospel. But Paul doesn't just mean I'm a prisoner for Jesus because I'm in house arrest in Rome. He actually means I'm a prisoner because I can't do anything except share the gospel with non-Jewish people. I can't do anything else. Maybe I would. Maybe I would go back to making tents. I wanted to be a religious leader. I want to sit on the council in Jerusalem. I want to be respected by all of these other apostles. I want to be in tune with them. There are so many levels that I want to be, but I can't give this up. I am a prisoner for the vision to take the gospel to the marginalized. That I can relate to. That I can connect to. My question for us is, what are we a prisoner to? on behalf of Jesus? Is there something that you know has been wrong and that you are captured by until it becomes right? My friend Todd Guckenberger, who's the executive director at Back to Back, this organization that I work for of Global Orphan Care, says for the 15 years that he lived in Monterey, there would be mornings that they would wake up and he would throw a whole bunch of stuff in their suburban and he would just start driving for the border of Texas. Because ministering to orphan children was just too overwhelming. And he would just get his wife and say, let's just go to Texas for the day. We'll spend the day in McAllen and we'll figure out if we want to even come back here because it's so hard. And he said that they would get in the car and as they would just start driving, maybe they would get 30 minutes out of Monterey. And he and Beth, his wife, would look at each other and go, we have to turn around because all we're about is orphan and vulnerable children. The hardest days caused him to get in his car and wanted to drive away. But he was prisoner to the pursuit of the orphan child on behalf of Jesus, and he could never leave the town. Is there something in your life that's captured you? A community of people. Paul is saying, relate to this, because I'm a prisoner of taking the gospel to the Gentile. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, surely you have heard, I don't know who Shirley is, but she has heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. We're going to move quickly. The only thing I want to highlight in that section, Paul is all about the mystery of the gospel, and to him, the mystery of the gospel is sharing in this season of life with the Gentiles. 
Which leads me to say, if the gospel, if sharing the gospel is the mystery, I have to come to an understanding of what that mystery really looks like and what it is, and who are the Gentiles for me? Who are the Gentiles for us? Because we're not in a generation that says it's Jew-Gentile. We're in a generation that says it's church, fill in the blank. And so who are we as the church that are invited to share the mystery of the gospel with fill in the blank for us. And what is that mystery and how would we know it? I would say in Colossians 2.2 what we read earlier is that he acknowledges the mystery of God which is namely Christ. That Paul would say the mystery of the gospel is Jesus. He is the mystery. All of his story and all of his reconciliation is the mystery. Sometimes though mysteries while we know what they are they still don't make sense. Right? There are these things out there like four. 8, 15, 16, 23, 42, right? It's a mystery that we know about, but we don't understand the point. Anyone, raise your hand if you know what I just talked about right there. I have one, two, three, four. Anyone? Lost fans? Yes? You, if you have not seen Lost, go find the gospel in that series as you binge watch it. But there is this story. So this mystery, years ago, there's a television show called Lost, and there are these numbers that just keep coming out, and people just have conversations about, what do the numbers mean? Are the numbers bad? Are the numbers good? Why are the numbers on a lottery ticket? Why is this guy repeating the numbers over and over? Why are they on this hatch in this deserted island where now we just, our plane just crashed? There are these numbers that bring out mystery that we go, oh, those numbers, that's Lost. What do they mean? I don't know what they mean, but you, I don't know. Sometimes we run into things that we go, I know that the mystery of the gospel is Jesus. What's it mean? I, I don't, huh, I don't know. Paul's effort here is to try to describe the mystery. If I give you any homework, which I've not given in any sermon here yet, this would be the homework on this next. It would be this. This would be, I would, I would say, just take this home and think on this. That the mystery is that through the gospel, blank are heirs together with blank, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. For you, who is it that fill these two blanks? The mystery is that through the gospel, vulnerable children are heirs together with me, with us, with the church, with, with who? Because once we come to an understanding of the mystery of the gospel that is for someone and that is with us, then we can start to move and transform the lives that are around us. But my for doesn't have to be the same as your for. Right? For Paul, it was Gentiles. For me, I would often, I'm, you've, you'll hear me a thousand times in my life say, I'm all about the gospel for emerging generations. I'm all about the gospel for emerging generations. I would write emerging generations in that first blank, but then the together with. I would have to wrestle with who. Who do I want them to connect with? Who do I want them living life with? Whose gospel do I want them to know? What generation's version of the story of God do I want emerging generations to be connected to so that they would know the fullness that is the mystery of Jesus? That's our homework for this week. Who is marginalized that you would say, these are the people that I'm about? 
And what would need to change in order for Echo to be the community that they would know the freedom that is the gospel? That's all that Paul is talking about in Ephesians. I have to skip so much of this because I tell too many stories. At the end of verse verse 13, I want to hit this really quickly. It says, in him, the revealing of the mystery is this, in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's the mystery revealed. Is that in him and through him, what he's done, that we would be revealed freedom, confidence, in the gospel that is Jesus. And so I go back to the end. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. My Scream of Fear movie ended with this. I was able to navigate Ephesians 3 so much better for those who had been burned by it because I had been burned by it too than had I ever had a negative experience with it. The immeasurable ways that God has used a verse that hurt me when I was a kid or when I was a kid in a a different story, but when I was a, a, a young youth minister has been the opportunity for me to sit in some of the darkest moments with people when they are questioning, why did God let this person die? Why hasn't God reached this person? Why didn't the church welcome this person? Isn't this the God who said he could do more than we can ask or imagine? And I could go, that's not what it means. What it means is he's willing to bring more freedom. He's willing to bring more confidence. He's willing to bring more riches as we sit through the mess Not that he's just going to make all the mess go away. But I had to go through the mess in order to help someone else through it. We get to the end of a week of camp. And we would talk about the mystery. And we would watch little clips of the mystery. And then at the end of the week, we would have people come in and they'd go, I'm the tribe of this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy. And then we would tell them, what if we don't show you the end of the movie? Rebellion. As a camp. We love that movie. That's our movie. We've never seen a movie like that before. It's like old and slow and we've screamed throughout the week because it had all of these surprises and all of these different things. You have to finish it. And so we would finish the movie and at the end of the movie we would get countless people coming back to the media booth and they would go where do I get that I have to buy that I have to show my friends I have to tell everyone about scream of fear we would have communities that would go home and watch it in their small group over and over because they were addicted to scream of fear and they would watch over and over and over and they would share the gospel of scream of fear because someone pushed play on something that they didn't know and they didn't understand and they let them rebel against it They let them scream at them about it. They let them hate it. And by the end, they couldn't wait to tell the gospel of it. Ephesians chapter 3. Welcome to the mystery of God. You're going to wrestle with it. You're going to be imprisoned by it. 
you're going to have moments where you're going to question whether or not God is driving you forward in it. But in the end, the riches of the gospel wait for those of us who finish the movie because we can't wait to give it to someone else. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this chapter and how deep it goes and how wide and all of the different aspects of your story that are in it that we didn't even scratch the surface on this morning. But thank you for the reminder that your mystery is you. It's your freedom and confidence in you. And I pray that you would extend that to us today as we figure out how to fill in those blanks. Who hasn't been welcomed? Who doesn't belong? What does it look like for us to push play for them? Just anoint these conversations as we just take this scripture and bring it to life in our own lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.